0: This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, let me start by uh, thanking our esteemed witnesses for appearing before us today to help the committee consider the perennial challenge of ensuring an appropriate balance between Congress and the executive branch concerning the use of military force. I'm holding this hearing at the specific requests of Senator Romney and other Republican uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee members who requested it prior to a vote on the 2002 AUMF repeal, as well as to jumpstart the broader discussion on the 2001 AUMF and other issues surrounding the use of force. And I believe that this subject, which is ultimately on whether to send our sons and daughters into conflict, is one of the most solemn votes that any member can take. So with that in mind, let me start with the repeal of both the 1991 and 2002 authorizations. Let's be very clear about what we're talking about. The 1991 authorization resolution authorizes the United States Armed Forces to take action to ensure Iraq's compliance with UN Security Council resolutions related to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. The 2002 AUMF authorizes the armed forces to take action against the continuing threat posed by Iraq, which at the time was still under the rule of Saddam Hussein, and the then administration claim was developing weapons of mass destruction. We know now that that was simply not true. Regardless, these authorizations simply do not reflect reality, which is that any US troops currently in Iraq are there at the invitation of the Iraqi government. Indeed, the president just welcomed Prime Minister Hadimi to the White House for a strategic dialogue. It simply makes no sense to keep an authorization against Iraq. The Biden administration has made clear through a formal statement of administration policy that it is not relying on the 2002 AUMF for ongoing operations or detention authority logically, as the terms of the AUMF applied only to threats emanating from Saddam Hussein's Iraq. In my view, it is irresponsible to keep this outdated authority on the books to address future hypothetical threats for which it was never intended. Now, some have made the argument that repealing this authorization would somehow show weakness or lack of resolve particularly against Iran as it continues to attack our forces in Iraq. However, I see little logic in this argument. Iranian-backed militias derive much of their support from the false narrative that the United States is still an occupying power of Iraq. Repealing the 2002 AUMF would clearly show that we are there in support of the sovereign Iraqi government. And let's be very clear, repealed or not, The 2002 AUMF does not authorize any military activity against Iran. Now, that is not to say that the United States will not show resolve against Iran as it continues to threaten our people or our national security interests. But the 2002 AUMF provides no authority to do that. Beyond the 2002 AUMF, I'd like to use this hearing to start a serious discussion on repealing and replacing the 2001 AUMF, another 20-year-old authorization. I absolutely believe we must provide this and any executive with the appropriate authority for conducting counterterrorism operations. But such an authorization must adequately reflect the true nature of today's threats and challenges. As one who did vote in support of the 2000 AUMF 20 years ago, I can safely say we never could have imagined it being used as a justification for airstrikes in Somalia or against against groups that did not even exist at the time. Now, I appreciate that the Biden administration and the National Security Advisor Sullivan have been engaging with the chair and with interested members on the question of what a 2001 AUMF repeal and replacement would be. And we look forward to having those continuing discussions on the path to being able to achieve that. Of course, the president has authority under Article II of the Constitution to repel attacks against the United States and against our personnel. But we must have an honest conversation about the scope of this authority and the power of Congress under Article I of the Constitution to declare war. The Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice has advanced a theory that congressional approval is required only for actions that rise to the level of war based on the conflict's quote, anticipated scope, nature, and duration. And if the action serves quote, important national interests. This interpretation is a self-serving one-way ratchet. Over time, it has enabled the executive branch to justify large-scale uses of military force without any congressional involvement, stretching the Constitution in ways that would be unrecognizable to the framers. A rebalancing is in order. Finally, over the past decade, the US government has advanced a more aggressive strategy in cyberspace. We are all aware of recent cyber attacks and significant cyber campaigns launched by state and non-state entities in Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. President Biden has made it clear that the United States will use offensive cyber capabilities when warranted and will accelerate U.S. operations to disrupt and to, quote, defend forward, end quote, against foreign cyber operations. The increasing use of cyber operations implicate a host of AUMF and war power issues. I firmly believe the committee, and I will be uh, be pursuing this, needs to be more assertive in our role as it relates to the use of force in the cyber domain, and that the executive branch needs to be more responsive to our requests in this area. So there's a lot to address. uh, But I do believe that uh, our goal in uh, repealing these two authorizations that uh, were for a time and place and against a country with a leader that no that leader no longer exists, and for which there is no authority to deal with any challenges with Iran, uh, and which actually serves as fuel uh, to militias to say that we are an occupying power uh, needs to be repealed. And I intend to move forward at a business committee meeting to do exactly that. With that, let me recognize the distinguished ranking member, Senator Risch.
1: Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for holding the hearing. Thank you for our witnesses for being here. Um, I, uh, it's interesting to note, I think, that probably the objective of everybody on this committee is the same when it comes to AUMFs. Uh, I've sat through scores of hours of, uh, on this committee and on the Intelligence Committee, both open and closed. Uh, to deal with what's probably one of the most vexing problems uh, that we face, uh, I, uh, I, I having said that, and having said that, we all have the same objective. I think it's it's good that we sit down and talk together on a rational basis to to reach a conclusion uh, as to where we go with these things. And and I uh, agree with the chairman that uh, messaging is extremely important. Uh, I think uh, as much as anything, uh, uh, messaging is. Uh, one of the things that the AMUF telegraphs to uh, both our friends uh, and uh, uh, our enemies. And uh, I I guess I come down on a a different side of that, uh, but uh, having said that, I think when you're talking about messaging, what you have to do is look at not as much your message as uh, the people who are receiving the message. And I suspect that the arguments on both sides probably prevail with some people. That is, some will read the message one way and some will read the message the other. And so uh, it's it's important that, uh, that we discuss it, it's important that uh, we resolve that, and it's important that we do uh, not only message but interpret that message for the people that are listening to it. Uh, President Biden has directed airstrikes on Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and Syria twice since February. Both actions have failed to deter further Iranian aggression. Within a few days of the U.S. airstrikes in February, Iranian militias attacked U.S. forces at Al-Assad Base in Iraq, attacked Israeli-owned ships in the Gulf of Amman, and increased drone attacks uh, against Saudi Arabia from both Iraq and Yemen. The the day following the most recent U.S. strike, Iranian militias launched multiple rockets at our forces in Southeast Syria and several days of attacks against our troops and diplomats in Iraq, resulting in American injuries. Uh, Beyond Iran's terrorism in the region, we recently saw a plot to kidnap an American citizen on United States soil, an appalling demonstration of Iran's disregard of uh, what we're doing. Well, the administration cited Article 2 authorities as the legal basis for recent strikes and concerned with the practical impla- impacts of repealing the, 202, uh, or the 2002 AUMF. The fact of the matter is that the 2002 AUMF provides the only statutory authority to strike Iran-backed back militias in Iraq. After all, the 2002 AUMF served as part of the legal basis for the strike against General Soleimani. Uh, The Biden administration's policy of less than robust responses to attacks against U.S. interests have clearly failed to restore deterrence. Having said that, it's all the more important uh, that uh, we uh, underscore the message that we're trying to send. Coupled with troop reductions across the Middle East, I'm concerned that the repeal of the 2002 AUMF only adds to the wrong message. The administration, and I think all of us, are already sending to Iran our allies in the region. A repeal of this authority uh, amplifies Iranian messages that they are ejecting uh, the U.S. from the region, rewards Iranian proxies for attacks against Americans, and decreases U.S. leverage in the nuclear talks in Vienna, indeed, if we have any leverage. It's vitally important that we understand the conditions under which we have previously uh, relied on this authority for both strikes and detention, and that we are certain that a repeal would not have the negative unintended consequences. Finally, I'm concerned that the repeal of the 2002 AUMF could increase calls for repeal of the 2001 AUMF, an authority that is critical to our global counterterrorism operations. I've already heard some of my colleagues calling for repeal of 2001 AUMF, and I believe such an action without a suitable replacement which is the real problem, uh, would make Americans less safe. Again, I think we have a lot to agree on. I think the messaging is incredibly important. And again, uh, it's important that we hold this uh, here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you, Senator Risch. We'll turn to our witnesses now. We have a great panel here. The Honorable Wendy Sherman, who's the Deputy Secretary of the Department of State. We appreciate your insights today. Mr. Richard Visick, uh, Acting Legal Advisor at the US Department of State and the Honorable Carolyn Crass, General Counsel of the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, I'd ask that uh, you summarize your statements as much as possible within five minutes. Your full statements will be included in the record without objection. And with that, uh, Secretary Chairman, you're recognized.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Ranking Member Risch. Distinguished members of the committee, uh, thank you for inviting me and my colleagues to testify here today. Uh, Ensuring the safety of American personnel overseas is the highest priority of the State Department and of course of the US government and the United States Congress, the United States Senate. As diplomats, it is our honor to represent America's values and interests at home and abroad. That requires our personnel to travel and live all over the world including in very challenging environments. We are here to discuss authorizations for the use of military force. But I believe the hearing is also about our democracy and the values we model around the world. Our foreign policy works best when we work together. President Biden is committed to engaging with Congress on questions of war and peace and to being transparent about when, where, why, and how the United States uses military force. I want to state clearly that the Biden-Harris administration believes the 2002 authorization for the use of military force against Iraq has outlived its usefulness and should be repealed. For the State Department, repealing the 2002 AUMF would not affect our diplomatic initiatives. And the administration has made clear that we have no ongoing military activities that rely solely on the 2002 AUMF. The fact is, the 2002 AUMF is no longer necessary to protect the American people from terrorism, to respond to attacks on our personnel or facilities, or to ensure the safety and security of our people. The President has other tools available to achieve these objectives. In fact, for the last six years, the executive branch has relied on other authorities to underpin counterterrorism actions and has only cited the 2002 AUMF as an additional authority. This was true for both the Trump and now the Biden administration. The 2002 AUMF is also woefully outdated in terms of our diplomatic relationship with Iraq. The preamble of the 2002 AUMF states that Iraq, quote, poses a continuing threat to the national security of the United States and international peace and security, unquote. As the chairman has said, this is not the case today. We work closely with the government of Iraq on a range of issues, from economic development to combating terrorism, far from a threat Iraq is an enduring, strategic partner of the United States. There should be no doubt that President Biden will take necessary, proportionate action to respond to attacks against U.S. personnel or facilities, including in Iraq. Indeed, he has already demonstrated his resolve. Just over a month ago, on June 27th, the President relied on his Article II authority to direct strikes in Syria and Iraq, at sites used by Iran-backed militia groups who have been involved in attacks against U.S. personnel and facilities in Iraq. President Biden did not need the 2002 AUMF to protect American interests in June. And our current assessment is that we will not need the 2002 AUMF to protect American interests in the foreseeable future. If we do need additional authorities to defend our people, we will not hesitate to come back to Congress to seek those authorities. I want to thank members of the Senate, including members of this committee, who have worked tirelessly on this issue. I particularly want to acknowledge Senator Kane, Senator Young, and Senator Murphy for your leadership and to thank former Senator Udall for his efforts. I know members of this committee and others in Congress are also actively considering options to repeal and replace the 2001 AUMF. As these efforts continue, the Biden-Harris administration stands ready to provide our guidance and expertise and other materials to assist Congress in its deliberations. As the chairman noted, those conversations are already ongoing. Repealing outdated, broad, or unnecessary authorizations for the use of military force and replacing them as needed with narrow clear and specific frameworks will allow us to continue protecting our people and our interests around the world. Finally, I want to take a moment, Mr. Chairman and Ranking uh, Member Mr. Risch, to thank you for your help in confirming, trying to confirm pending State Department nominees. I thank the Chairman, Ranking Member Risch for moving many nominees forward with broad bipartisan support, and I hope they will be swiftly confirmed by the Senate. We are currently hamstrung in our ability to advance America's interests around the world without confirmed ambassadors and senior leaders. I recently returned from a trip to China where it would have been very helpful to have had the expertise of Ambassador Dan Crittenbrink, our nominee to serve as Assistant Secretary for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, who has been passed through this committee and waiting floor approval. And given the critical need to do everything we can to strengthen our economy and improve the lives of working people in our country. I hope, as the committee has done, that Jose Fernandez will soon be confirmed as our Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy, and Environment as soon as possible. I thank this committee and the Senate for confirming Bonnie Jenkins as our Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security before the Strategic Stability Dialogue we held with Russia last week. I know there are other nominees who have already been reported out of Committee 10, I believe, by voice vote with strong bipartisan support, and this committee has noticed an additional hearing this week, which we greatly appreciate. We appreciate this committee's continuing work to move our nominees forward so they can get to work on behalf of the American people. Thank you again for inviting me to testify today. I look forward to taking your questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ranking Member Risch.
0: Thank you, Madam Secretary, we share your concerns about having a State Department that is fully staffed at some of the highest levels to promote U.S. foreign policy and pursue U.S. national security and national interests. And it is my hope that uh, we will have a process on the floor that would allow these nominees that have, for the most part, overwhelmingly passed through the committee in a bipartisan way to be achieved. I know that in the case of Mr. Fernandez, uh, the objections of one of our colleagues has been lifted, but it seems that uh, the Republican leader is still uh, uh, not putting his name forward. We're, we're waiting eagerly to get the final undersecretary in place. So we will continue to work at this. It's incredibly important for any administration to have their nominees to be able to conduct foreign policy on behalf of the United States. Uh, Mr. Vice.
3: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch, and members of the committee for inviting us to address the administration's support for repeal of the 2002 Authorization for Use of Military Force Against Iraq. The preamble to the 2002 AUMF speaks to the threat the United States was facing from Iraq in 2002. At that time, Saddam Hussein's regime was threatening the lives of Americans, flouting its obligations under UN Security Council resolutions, brutally oppressing its own people, threatening its regional neighbors, and posing a danger to international peace and stability. Today, the circumstances in Iraq have changed dramatically. The Iraqi government seeks friendship, partnership, and cooperation with the United States and with the international community. The threats posed by ISIS and destabilizing Iranian activities, including by Iran-backed militia groups in Iraq, are serious and real. But those threats are not what the 2002 AUMF was designed to address nearly 20 years ago. As a result, and as Deputy Secretary Sherman just explained, the administration supports repeal of the 2002 AUMF. Repeal is aligned with the President's commitments to to continuing a strong relationship with our Iraqi partners and to working with Congress to ensure that outdated authorizations for the use of military force are replaced with a narrow and specific framework that ensures we can continue to protect Americans from terrorist threats. The President has stated that in any effort to reform existing AUMFs, it will be critical to maintain authority to address threats to the United States with appropriately decisive and effective military action. To be clear, we do not believe that the repeal of the 2002 AUMF will impede our ability to do so. U.S. forces remain in Iraq at the invitation of the Iraqi government in a training, advising, assisting, and intelligence-sharing role in support of our Iraqi partners in their fight against ISIS. This mission remains essential, but the 2002 AUMF is not necessary to execute that mission or to protect and defend our forces while doing so. The 2001 AUMF, AUMF authorizes the US counterterrorism mission against ISIS and al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria. In addition, Article II of the Constitution empowers the president to direct certain military action when necessary to protect and defend our personnel and facilities. Some members of this committee have pointed out that Iran's destabilizing activities in Iraq undermine US objectives and pose a threat to US forces in Iraq. We agree. Iran-backed militia groups have engaged in UAV and rocket attacks against U.S. forces and facilities in Iraq. Although we seek to de-escalate and avoid conflict with Iran and Iranian-backed militia groups, as Deputy Secretary Sherman just noted, the President has made it clear that we will take necessary and proportionate action in self-defense to respond to attacks against U.S. personnel and facilities in Iraq. To that end, the President directed strikes in both February and June of this year in order to defend and protect U.S. personnel from ongoing series of attacks to deter further attacks. The President did not rely on the 2002 AUMF in directing any of these recent actions. In sum, we believe we have sufficient authority to continue the vital counter-ISIS mission in Iraq and Syria and to address any threats to U.S. personnel or the United States that might arise in Iraq without relying on the 2002 AUMF. If circumstances change and it becomes clear that other legal authorities are insufficient to address such threats, the administration would work with the Congress to develop an appropriate new domestic authority that is tailored to addressing that scenario. Thank you, Mr. Chair.
0: Thank you, Ms. Crass.
4: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of this committee. I'm honored to be here today to help address your questions about the 2002 authorization for the use of military force against Iraq and any legal implications of its repeal. My colleagues from the State Department have already provided a thorough summary of the the key issues at the heart of any discussion about repealing the 2002 AUMF. As a result, I will keep my remarks very brief. But I want to be clear that the Department of Defense agrees with this administration's view, as expressed in the statement of administration policy, that repealing that law would have minimal impact on current DOD activities and operations. We can say that confidently, because no ongoing military activities rely solely on the 2002 AUMF as a domestic legal basis. Repealing the 2002 AUMF would not impede US forces' ability to protect and defend themselves the Department of Defense would have raised concerns and opposed repeal if we thought it would put any of our men and women in uniform at greater risk. Repealing the 2002 AUMF also would not affect the legal authority to continue the important work of ensuring the lasting defeat of ISIS. The United States, along with members of the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS and our local partners, including in particular the Iraq Security Forces, have made tremendous gains in that fight over the years. For the last past six years, I'm sorry, for at least the past six years, the 2002 AMF has been cited only as an additional authority underlying the Defeat ISIS campaign. It was not a necessary authority at the outset of the campaign, and it is not necessary now. The president will have sufficient legal authority to continue addressing the threat from ISIS and other terrorist groups, even if the 2002 AMF is repealed. Finally, repealing the 2002 AUMF would not significantly constrain the United States' ability to respond to other threats that are currently foreseeable in Iraq. In particular, the Department is clear-eyed about the risks to US forces and to our partners and allies that are posed by Iran-backed militia groups. We take those risks extremely seriously. The Department has considered the full scope of how any repeal might affect our ability to continue addressing threats in the region quickly and effectively. In the end, we believe that sufficient domestic legal authority would be available to do so, even in the absence of the 2002 AUMF. And as my Department of State colleagues have noted, if in the future we are faced with a currently unanticipated need to use military force, the Department, together with our interagency colleagues, would work with Congress to develop any appropriate new authorization tailored to addressing those threats. Thank you again for the opportunity to speak with you today. And I look forward to your questions.
0: All right. Thank you very much to all our witnesses. Let me start a round of questions of five minutes. Uh, The administration has issued a statement of administration policy supporting a repeal of 2002 AUMF. Madam Secretary, I assume the State Department was part of that process, and as I think your testimony suggests, the State re- supports repeal.
2: Yes, uh, we do. Uh,
0: uh, Ms. Um, Krass, uh, was the Defense Department part of the process for the Statement of Administration Policy, and does the Defense Department support repeal?
4: Yes, we were part of that process.
0: And do you, uh, does the Department support repeal?
4: Yes, we have no objections to appeal.
0: And now it's my understanding that there are no ongoing military operations for which the 1991 or 2002 AUMFs are necessary as a domestic legal authority. Is that the case, Mr. Visek?
3: Yes, it is, Mr. Chair. Uh,
0: I understand that the 1991 and 2002 AUMFs are not necessary as the domestic legal basis for any detention activities at Guantanamo Bay. Is that accurate?
3: That is correct.
0: Similarly, neither the 1991 nor the 2002 AUMF is necessary for the detention of ISIS members abroad. Is that correct? That is correct. Now, the administration has not cited the 2002 AUMF in relation to the U.S. defensive actions against Iranian-backed militias in February and July. Is it accurate that the administration believes it has sufficient authority under Article II to defend U.S. interests and personnel against Iranian-backed militias and does not need The 2002 AUMF to do so? That is correct. If there was a need for the administration to take sustained action against Iranian-backed militias, or Iran for that matter, in a manner that goes beyond Article 2 authority, would the administration come back to Congress, Madam Secretary, for a new AUMF?
2: As we all have said, yes we would.
0: All right, based on those responses, I don't think Congress would be doing its job or living up to its constitutional responsibilities. If we do not move forward with repealing the 1991 and 2002 AUMFs, it was an authorization to use force against Saddam Hussein and Saddam Hussein's Iraq. The need for that authorization ended over a decade ago. And as our witnesses just testified, neither AUMFs is needed for any ongoing operation or detention activities, period. Moving forward with this repeal of this authorization is not just what's important for us to do to uphold our congressional oversight responsibilities, it also directly responds to the overwhelming will of the American people to curtail endless wars in the Middle East. Now, I suspect there will be a lot of hypotheticals, what ifs thrown at our witnesses today, but I believe our duties as senators is not to dream up scenarios in an effort to keep a dead letter law on the books, especially when it comes to something so serious as sending our troops into harm's way. The 2002 AUMF is not the answer to any threat that we are facing today. And if other existing authorities are insufficient to address those threats, I would expect the administration to come to Congress to seek a new AUMF. Now, Madam Secretary, uh, I have heard the arguments against repeal that it would weaken our position vis-à-vis Iraq Iran, and in the Middle East more generally. Uh, In fact, Senator Rish and I recently had a productive meeting with Iraqi Prime Minister Khadimi on numerous facets of the US-Iraq bilateral relationship and the challenges it faces with Iranian-aligned militias. Uh, Our discussion underscored that we are in a radically different paradigm in our partnership with Baghdad than we were in 2002. So some have argued that repeal of the Iraq AUMS will cause the United States to appear weak. I don't personally agree to that, but I'd like to hear from you, from the administration's point of view. What is the administration's position on that point? And what steps is the administration taking and will the administration take if a repeal passes to ensure the United States maintains its overall leverage in the region?
2: Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Indeed, We believe that uh, repealing the 2002 AUMF is a signal of the bipartisan work over the last more than two decades uh, to establish an Iraq that is very different than the one that existed at the time that the 1991 and 2002 AUMFs were decided. Uh, We now have a strategic partnership with Iraq. It is, in fact, a sign of strength that together, both Republicans and Democrats, have created a relationship with Iraq that is built on strength, on a strategic partnership, uh, that indeed, as you pointed out, uh, we are currently in a place, as was uh, decided by the Iraqis themselves, where our troops are focusing on training, enabling, and advising our Iraqi partners. Uh, That indeed, the US-Iraq strategic dialogue in July resulted in a communique that was less focused on military cooperation as the defining feature uh, than having the Iraq government itself uh, commit to defend any American personnel or troops in Iraq. I think it really speaks to how strong we are in the region uh, that, in fact, we have developed this strategic relationship uh, with um, uh, Iraq. Iraqi forces, including the Pershmirga, have shown increased capability to lead counterterrorism efforts and defend Iraq's sovereignty. And I think it speaks uh, to the strength and the success of the bipartisan efforts in building this strategic partnership. I think as well, as you've heard from me and from my colleagues, uh, that the president will not hesitate to take action if we believe that any uh, backed militia, Iranian or otherwise, uh, are a threat to the United States, that he has sufficient authority under his Article II uh, abilities, uh, and uh, relying on a revised uh, 2001 in other appropriate circumstances to take targeted strikes, as he did in both uh, February and on June 27th. So I think, quite frankly, uh, Senator, uh, rather than speak to weakness, this speaks to strength, uh, that the United States has established this strategic partnership That is, a- Iraq is quite a different country. Uh, then at the time of Saddam Hussein, uh, and that the United States is poised to have a different relationship with Iraq and in the Middle East.
1: Thank you very much. Senator rich Thank you. I want to I'll pick up where the chairman left off. Uh, <clears throat> the meeting he and I had uh, with the head of the Iraqi government was, uh, uh, it was interesting to say the least. And I, I think one thing that went through my head was just what uh, what you've referred to, Ms. Sherman, and that is how different things are today in Iraq than they were in 2002 when the uh, AUMF was passed. Uh, Again, I want to underline here uh, that I think we're all wanting to reach the same objective here, and that is to message that uh, we are going to continue to act out of strength and not out of weakness, and I think that's probably where we part ways as far as whether the 2002 should stay in the books or whether it should be repealed. I cons- I'm concerned that if it is repealed that those uh, who receive the message will say, aha, no matter what they say, they still repeal the 2002 AUMF, which is a sign of weakness. The the thing that I haven't been persuaded on is why, uh, what's to be gained by the 2002 uh, uh, AUMF being left on the books. I mean we have all kinds of laws and resolutions and executive orders and everything else That are put into place when they're over they're put on the shelf and uh, nobody repeals them or anything else so I'm I'm just uh, I, I, I see a gain in not repealing it so that those that are our enemies can't use it to say look uh, We're backing down or we're weak. Uh, I don't see the I, I just don't see the advantage to uh, uh, leaving it on the shelf. Uh, Convince me why I'm wrong, Ms. Sherman.
2: Well, uh, Senator, I understand your concern, and messaging is very important. But in my own view, uh, as I just said, I think that, in fact, repeal says we have succeeded. Uh, Repeal says that the time of Saddam Hussein is over. Uh, The time of an Iraq that was not a partner of the United States is behind us. So in my view, and in the view of the administration, repealing the 2002 AUMF is a sign of strength, of success, of moving forward in history. Uh, I agree it should be put on the shelf. Uh, and I think the only difference we have is the word repeal. Uh, because I think everyone, as you have noted, is saying that we are at a very different time as you experienced in your own uh, discussion with the Iraqi government. So, I think repeal is really a message to the international community that the relationship between, uh, in our democracy is one where we acknowledge the progress we've made, we establish the strength of Iraqi sovereignty, uh, that we have a partnership with them going forward, that this is a different Iraq and a different time, and that in a bipartisan fashion that the United States government has moved forward. Uh, to a more peaceful sovereign and hopefully moving towards a more democratic Iraq.
1: Well, thanks. I, I like that uh, I like the message uh, my again I'm troubled by the fact that the message might just be a little too sophisticated for some of the people that uh, are receiving the message and uh, And passing it on but be that as it may I think the best messaging we've done in recent years is taken out General Soleimani uh, and of course 2002 AUMF was used as part of the reason for that. Uh, I, I don't know whether it was or whether it wasn't. I think they'd have done that with or without the 2002 uh, AUMF. But that's the best messaging that we've sent in a long, long time. In any event, I, I again, we're all headed for the same objective here. I, I like your message. Uh, I hope it's heard loud and clear throughout the Middle East, and, uh, and I'm all in. But uh, I don't. Uh, I don't think we need to repeal the 2002 AUMF to get there, but uh, again, I think we're all, we're, there's a whole lot more agreement than there is disagreement on this. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Rich, Senator Cardin.
5: Well, Mr. Chairman, first, I wanna thank you for holding this hearing. I think this is what we should be doing, oversight on the AUMF, and I wanna thank all three of our witnesses for their service to their country. Senator Rich, I think I'll answer your question. It's just possible that if we leave an authorization on the books, an administration will misuse that authorization. And I give you, as an example, the 2001 authorization, which has clearly been interpreted well beyond any of our interpretations when we voted for it. And I speak personally because, like the chairman, I was a member of the Congress in 2001, so was Senator Markey and others uh, that voted for that. And we never ever in our wildest dreams thought it would be used in seven countries, the way it's been used by now, I guess, four administrations. So one of the lessons that has been learned through this process is that we need in considering AUMFs to have some process in that AUMF for administrations to be able to update that authority with congressional approval or allow that authorization to expire. I think that's going to be critically important that we include in any further authorizations for use of military force. And our lessons that we've learned from that is the 2001 authorization. The 2002 repeal should not be controversial, and I understand Senator Rich's point and I I respect it greatly. But 2001 should also uh, be repealed and replaced. And I just would like to talk about the urgency here and then ask the question. We're now in August of this uh, Congress. Time is evaporating. This is not an easy subject to replace authorizations for the use of force. And in all due respect, I think it's absolutely essential for the administration to come forward as to the authorization that they need. Because you see, we all have different views about the threats that are out there the geographical scope of any authorization, the requirements to come back to Congress if circumstances changes, and what type of an approval process is necessary, the length of time for the authorization. All those are questions that each of us have different views. But the starting point should be those that have the responsibility to exercise the power to keep us safe, the executive branch, the president, to come to us and tell us what you need. And then let us debate it with you, and hopefully come up with a replacement. Uh, Secretary Sherman, I very much uh, respect uh, your view on this. I, I thought your last statement about repealing outdated, broad, and unnecessary authorization for the use of military force like 2002 AMF and for replacing them as needed with clear, narrow, and specific frameworks will allow us to continue protecting our people and our interests. I agree with that paragraph, but I would add 2001 rather than 2002. We've got to replace that. So I'm seriously considering whether there'll be an opportunity for us, Mr. Chairman, to put a sunset on the 2001, giving ample time for a replacement to be voted on by Congress, because otherwise I'm not sure we'll ever do it. It's just too easy for administrations to misinterpret the authority of 2001 and quite frankly we're not at risk because as our witnesses have testified there's a- adequate authority under article 2 to protect us so article 2 is there to protect us against any imminent threat we're not going to be bare as far as protecting our country the president will protect us as the commander in chief but congress should give the administration the authority they need and not just this broad use of an outdated authority. So, so, Madam Secretary, can you give us a, a, what is wrong with us setting dates that we need to replace this by, recognizing that you always have Article 2 authority? We, I would hope the legacy of the Biden administration will be that you, that future administrations will not be relying on the 2001 authorization in order to protect us from a threat that did not exist in 2001.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Senator. Uh, As you know, the President of the United States served in this body for 36 years. And he has great regard for both the Article I responsibilities of the Congress and the Senate and the Article II authorities of the President of the United States. And he has committed, and we have all committed, to work with Congress to ensure that outdated authorizations for the use of military force are replaced with narrow and specific frameworks that will ensure we can continue to protect Americans from terrorist threats. There are a lot of complex questions involved in doing this, scope, duration, more, uh, but we welcome enhanced congressional involvement and interbranch dialogue over the use of military force, including in protecting the United States and U.S. interests from the evolving terrorist threats we face. Uh, we know that these are changing, that Chairman uh, mentioned uh, some, including in cyber, uh, that have changed the nature of thinking about terrorist threats. So the administration is open and has begun already discussions with Congress to uh, replace or revise the 2001 AUMF uh, that might consider some of the following things, establishing a mechanism uh, to add groups, beyond those that may have been identified by name in the text of the AUMF, because as you point out, it has been relied upon uh, in circumstances perhaps that you did not imagine, uh, through appropriate input from an engagement between the president and Congress or the executive branch in Congress, uh, to establish a mechanism to add countries uh, in which the use of force is authorized uh, of against particular groups, uh, and to have a periodic review of groups and countries. So, I think that there's a lot of work to be done. It may be that those kinds of ideas aren't the right ones, but those are things that we are willing to discuss, as well as other things that the Senate might put on the table. But we are in support, Senator, very much of continuing those discussions in a timely manner to reach a revised 2001 AUMF at the same time that we continue to support the repeal of the 1991 and the 2002 AUMFs, which we believe are not useful anymore and are not relied upon in any circumstance.
6: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I very much appreciate the opportunity that you've given our committee to uh, hear from these uh, witnesses and to discuss this very important matter. Um, I'm going to continue with some of the comments and questions that were raised by Senator Cardin. Uh, Secretary Sherman, uh, will the Biden administration misuse this AUMF? No, sir. Good. Um, Senator Cardin indicated that, that this should be repealed and replaced. And I'm focused on the word replaced. There have been efforts to try and narrow and replace these AUMF in the past. Senator Corker, when he was chairman of this committee back in 2018, uh, brought forward such a a revision, didn't make it out of committee. Going back to 2013, uh, President Obama sought an AUMF uh, with regards to Syria. That, of course, was not successful on the floor. I'm concerned that the prospect of uh, this body ever approving an AUMF uh, to deal with the ongoing threat represented by ISIS, the Taliban, uh, al-Qaeda, and other like groups would never pass this body. Uh, and that um, uh, that, uh, in addition to the comments and the, and the concerns that were raised by the ranking member, with which I concur, that the idea that somehow we're going to come up with some new AUMFs is just not... Not realistic and and, and I you know I think about a scenario uh, perhaps uh, yes certainly the president has article 2 power to defend our troops and to defend against imminent attack of the United States but let's say he continues to withdraw or a president continues to withdraw troops from Afghanistan and Iraq and we have no troops in Afghanistan and Iraq and ISIS goes on a rampage and starts expanding territory and wiping out uh, individuals there or for that matter that in Afghanistan that the Taliban routs the the democratically elected government and starts killing women and children, Uh, would we, under Article II, have legal authority to go in if we had no troops there or were not threatened in in the homeland?
2: I would defer to my legal colleagues to answer the legal point there. Your broader point, uh, Senator, about whether we need a new AUMF uh, we do believe revising the 2001 AUMF is appropriate, and we hope that working together with the United States Senate, uh, that indeed uh, a 2001 AUMF revision can take place. So we fully support your view. Uh, I, that, I, that would be a good thing to quote,
6: do. Quoting a great American, hope is not a strategy. <laughs> uh, let, let, are, are there other AUMFs uh, out there that have not been repealed?
2: No. Uh, We have the 2001, the 1991, the 2002, and as you point out, uh, the Article II authority of the president, which, uh, in fact, is uh, most often been used uh, not only by this president, but by the previous president as the basis for taking action.
6: Given the fact that you're convinced that the Biden administration will not misuse this AUMF uh, and the fact that we face ongoing uh, threats from various uh, terror organizations, and at least my conviction that it would be very difficult for this body to ever agree to another AUMF uh, absent a a threat to the homeland. Um, why do you believe it's necessary for us to remove this AUMF, which has been used by President Obama, uh, uh, President Trump, to to uh, defend our interests? I think I think there's a sense that if the homeland is going to be threatened, that we have every right to step in. We all agree with that but our interests in the world go beyond protecting the homeland. They also keep bad things from happening and becoming so severe that they draw us in and ultimately do represent a threat to the homeland. So, so why, why take the chance that, as the ranking member indicated, that this is misinterpreted in the Middle East? I can't imagine anybody uh, in any leadership position thinks that we're at war with Iraq. It's very clear we're there at Iraq's request, that we're collaborating and helping the government protect themselves from ISIS and protect against the the incursion of of Iran. That's a message loud and clear. No one thinks Saddam Hussein is still in charge uh, of Iraq and that we're fighting Saddam Hussein. So this has extraordinary potential to be misinterpreted. Why do it now? Uh, They're about to have elections in Iraq uh, potentially this could be misconstrued as somehow America is pulling away. I, I just, it just seems like the risk is much greater than the benefit of of, uh, uh, of the nature that you're describing.
2: I think, uh, Senator, I'm gonna defer to my legal colleague on the use of the 2002, though I do not believe that even President Trump used 2002 as the basis for any action he took. The uh, killing of Soleimani was done primarily under Article II. But to your broader point, uh, the Iraqi government now sees itself as a sovereign country in partnership with the United States and does not wish to be a, have an appearance of uh, the Iraq that is cited in either 1991 or 2002. But let me, uh, if I may, let our legal, acting legal advisor add from legal perspective uh, the value here.
3: Uh, thank you, Senator. The, uh, I think there's some, con- maybe some, a little bit of confusion that is creeping in, uh, and I think that's because we're talking about two AUMFs.
6: Uh, yes, one, and that was that was raised by the chairman and and, uh, and Senator Cardin. So I think I think in reality we are talking about two. That's that's I, I know it's not literally on the agenda, but that's the case. I know I've gone over my time, Mr. Chairman. So I'll.
3: But if I may, yeah. if I may, Senator, the um, the 2001 AUMF obviously authorizes our uh, activities against ISIS and the Taliban. Uh, it is a cornerstone of that effort. And I think it's important to, to recognize what we are talking about in the context of the 2001 is a replacing that with a more narrow, specific framework um, that can ensure that we're still able to carry out that duty. The 2002 AUMF, on the other hand, the AUMF against Iraq, um, we can continue to conduct our operations, and we can address the ISIS and the Taliban threat. Um, even even with out. no troops there? Without, well,
6: if we um, had no troops there?
3: Well, sir, whether or not we have troops there is another question, but without the 2002 AUMF. The 2002 AUMF would not put troops there. It wouldn't take away troops, but it doesn't add any authority, and we don't rely on it for those
0: operations.
6: Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you. Just, just two remarks for the Senator's consideration. I was the author of the 2013 AUMF, at, then at the request of President Biden, because Saddam, I mean, because Assad was using chemical weapons against his people. That AUMF passed this committee with the late John McCain and Barbara Boxer, two extremes of the ideological divide, uh, in a robust bipartisan vote. The reason it never went, it didn't go to the floor. It's not that it failed on the floor. It didn't go to the floor because President Obama took that authorization of the committee and made it very clear at the G20 uh, meeting in Russia that he would seek to finalize that authorization and use it against uh, Assad if he did not give up his chemical weapons. So it never it's not that it failed on the Senate floor. It just never got there because it wasn't necessary. And as to, uh, I know that I opened up the conversation and I intend for it to be that way, about the 91-2002, but also the 2001. But what the committee will be voting on in the first instance will be the 91 and 2002 AUMF repeals. And all I'll say on that regard is it would be a perversion of what Congress voted for to read in those authorizations anything anything that goes beyond the Saddam Hussein era of Iraq and th- and that's and that's that's uh, we have a legitimate conversation going on in the 2001 and what it means but on the others, I think it's a little it's it's a little less certain but I appreciate the, the Senator's views and interest Senator Shaheen.
7: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to each of our witnesses for your service and for your testimony today. Um, Ms. Crass, I'm going to actually begin with you. And I'm going to try and restate what I think was Senator Romney's question to Mr. Visick, And I'm directing it at you because you are in the Department of Defense. Would the repeal of the 2002 AUMF impact US forces that remain in Iraq now in any way?
4: No, no Senator. No.
7: And. Can you provide a scenario in which the president might need to rely on that AUMF to use force in Iraq?
4: No, I cannot think of one.
7: Thank you. Um, I'm not sure who to direct this at, but some of the US litigation around AUMF authorities has dealt with the issue of detaining enemy combatants. So maybe, Ambassador Sherman, you would take the first crack at this. What, if any, effect do you anticipate the repeal of the 2002 AUMF would have on the detainee issue? None, none whatsoever,
2: Senator. And uh, certainly uh, defer to uh, uh, Mr. Visick and to Ms. Crass if they have anything to add from a legal perspective, but my impression is none. Mr. Visick?
3: Senator, the 2002 AUMF is not a source of authority for any current detainee operations, including those at Guantanamo.
7: Thank you. Um, and just to go back, I, I think, Secretary Sherman, you answered this in your opening statement, but I do believe that the previous administration cited the 02 AUMF in strikes against Iran and its proxies. Um, and as you pointed out, this administration doesn't believe that the AMF provides authority for force against Iran-backed militias or against Iran. Did I understand that correctly?
2: So it doesn't provide any authority to attack Iran. Um, Indeed, as I mentioned a moment ago, it is my understanding and recollection that when uh, the previous administration uh, took the uh, attack against Qasem Soleimani. It primarily relied on Article Two. Uh, Article Two, uh, the AUMF 2002, was used as an additional authority, but was not a necessary one.
7: So, can you describe? what authorities the administration is relying on in the operations that have been taken so far this year against Iran-backed proxies in Syria and Iraq?
2: If I may, let me let uh, the legal advisor answer uh, the legal authorities for those strikes, though I believe uh, they were Article 2 authorities.
7: Mr. Vizek?
3: That would be correct. Um, Senator, the under the domestic law basis, the uh, president uh, acted under his authority under Article 2 to defend and protect U.S. personnel from, from attacks. Uh, from an international law basis, we were using uh, relying on our inherent uh, right of self-defense under Article 51 of the U.N. Charter. Uh, we reported the Article 2 to the, the, the Congress, consistent with the, the War Powers Resolution, and also we reported uh, our basis to the U.N. Security Council in accord with Article 51.
7: And just to be clear, so if US um, personnel are are affected again, we don't need the, in the Middle East, we don't need the 02 AUMF in order to defend them.
3: That is correct.
7: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Uh, Thank you. Senator Paul.
8: I wholeheartedly uh, support the public and official ending of the Iraq War. Many of us thought the war was a mistake to begin with. Large percentages of the public now in retrospect think the war was a mistake. Even if you poll our veterans who have fought in the war, the vast majority of our veterans actually think it was a mistake. So publicly ending the Iraq war, which has been over for a decade, is a great idea and shouldn't be controversial. But people who want to keep it in place have to realize that this vote will be similar to the vote in 2002. The vote in 2002 allowed 100,000 troops or more to be in Iraq. It allowed 2,000 of our soldiers to die. It allowed 20,000 people to be wounded. It allowed over 1,000 young men and women to lose their arms and legs. That's what you're voting for now. If you leave this in place, any president could do the same thing they did in 2002. That's what you're voting for. Wouldn't you want to vote again? People say we might not vote for it. That would be good if we didn't vote for another Iraq war. But if there is another need for a war, come and vote. When we have been attacked, we have voted overwhelmingly. When we were attacked on 9-11, we overwhelmingly voted. Iraq was a different story, and still people have debates over whether it was a good idea to this day. But leaving it on the books, if you vote (laughs) to leave it on the books, you're voting to allow a president to send as much as hundreds of thousands of troops in. Now, this is just debate over what you can do under Article II authority. I, I personally think it would be much more narrow than any recent president has interpreted it to be. But every president has interpreted it to be wide open. And the only way we stop them, the only way we can possibly stop them is by defunding something they do. And we're unlikely to do that. But I don't think any president believes they can take 100,000 troops into Iraq or into any country without an authorization of force. So getting rid of this gets rid of the possibility of a big war by any president, I think. I don't think any president would attempt to do that without this in place. So we get rid of the possibility of a big war. That's what we're voting against. All the little things, not always little, but all of the military actions that presidents take, they will continue to take without any authorization. With regard to 2001, There is a danger, and this is where I disagree with many who want to replace it. Absolutely, we should repeal it. People say, oh, we want to make it more narrow. It's extremely narrow. It authorized us to go after those who planned, authorized, committed, and aided the terrorist attacks on one day, September 11th. It's been interpreted to be associated forces, ISIS, al-Qaeda. There's no one left alive that has anything to do with 9-11. So it is very narrow. It doesn't apply to anything we're doing around the world as we speak, but it has been overly broad and overly broadly interpreted. So we should repeal it also. We shouldn't have 1,000 troops in Mali. We shouldn't have 1,000 troops in Somalia. We shouldn't be in 14 different countries. But if we replace it, all of the replacements of 2001 authorization have been still broad enough to, in, to be interpreted to include all the places we're involved with. Dozens of wars could be fought with most of the replacement pills. So I'd say repeal them all. War is supposed to be something that's difficult to get involved with. Come before us, we, we just give up our power by having any AUMF on the, on the books. They all should be repealed. And if people wanna to go to war, which is a terrible thing, come and vote. When we've been attacked, we will vote to go to war. But we're reluctant to and, and, and good That should be a good thing, that we shouldn't. Is it likely we'd vote to to go to war in Mali or Somalia tomorrow? We'd probably vote against it, and that would be a good thing. That's also why we shouldn't be there now. But I caution those who want to replace it that replacing 2001, most of the efforts, while well-intended, I think we're as broad or broader than the actual language. The language is actually uh, very narrow in 2001, but has been uh, overly interpreted. So I think it's important that the American people know that this is a vote about a war that's long been over, but a vote to keep this is really a vote to allow something as big as the Iraq war was at its maximum. That's what this is about. If you want that kind of power on the books and you don't want to vote again, You know, if a brand-new threat comes up, you don't want to have the power to determine for your constituents whether we go to war or not. That is giving up a huge amount of power that our founding fathers thought should always be vested in Congress. That's all I have. Thank you.
0: I thank the senator. I've asked Senator Coons, who is next, uh, to question, also to preside for a few minutes. Senator Coons.
9: I'd like to thank our witnesses uh, who've appeared before us today and just take a moment to make sure that I have clarity and that those who may be watching have clarity and the members of this committee have clarity about what we're discussing and what we're not discussing. If you could each just repeat <laughs> briefly, it's been your testimony today that repealing the 91 and the 02 AUMFs will have no impact on our security, on our operations. In fact, they will have positive impacts on our relations with Iraq, on a demonstration that the constitutional roles in the democratic process can actually function. And I will speak for myself, not ascribing this to the administration. One might view that action as the beginning step in rebalancing the operational roles between the executive and the legislative, in particular, the constitutional role of the Senate, the declaration of war. So could you just please, each of you, am I understanding you correctly? The repeal of 91 and 02 will have no impact on our security or deterrence and would, in fact, be a positive for our nation.
2: I agree with you, Senator.
9: Mr. Bilsing.
3: That is correct, Senator.
9: Ms. Kress.
4: Yes, Senator. Um, There are no ongoing military operations that rely uh, solely on the 2002 AUMF.
9: So it's my hope that we will proceed um, to take this important first step and repeal these two uh, outdated and no longer relevant or necessary AUMFs. But there's been a lot of conflating, um, those two AOMFs and the 01 AUMF. And I think that's largely because of a dynamic where the 0 01 AUMF has been stretched beyond all recognition in terms of its scope and reach from what was contemplated when it was initially adopted. The chairman referenced the process many of us went through in 2013 Uh, where we debated and ultimately passed in a robust and bipartisan way an AUMF related to Syria. Let me ask just a few questions, if I could. Uh, The United States recently carried out strikes on al-Shabaab targets in Somalia. Um, And I think that raises exactly the sorts of questions about scope, about narrowness, about adding new combatants uh, that's really at the the heart of our debate and our concerns. Mr. Chairman, if you might, given the 01 AUMF doesn't mention Al-Shabaab or Somalia, um, how did we come to be at war uh, with Al-Shabaab? And has Al-Shabaab ever specifically targeted Americans or our homeland prior to the Obama administration determining it was an associated force?
2: Right. As you noted, (coughs) Senator, the Obama administration determined and notified Congress in 2016 that Al-Shabaab is covered by the 2001 AUMF as an associated force of Al-Qaeda. The determination was made with respect to Al-Shabaab because, among other things, Al-Shabaab has pledged loyalty to Al-Qaeda in its public statements, made clear that it considers the United States one of its enemies, and been responsible for numerous attacks, threats, and plots against US persons and interests in, action- in East Africa. In short al-Shabaab has entered the fight alongside al-Qaeda and is a co-belligerent with al-Qaeda in hostilities against the United States, making it an associated force and therefore within the scope of the 2001 AUMF. As I understand it, and uh, my legal colleagues, I should say to this committee, I am not a lawyer, um, uh, my understanding is that uh, it was, in fact, the 2001 AUMF, The allowed uh, for the domestic law basis for this, and as a matter of international law, the legal basis for use of force by the United States in the territory of Somalia is consent of the Somali government itself. Uh, So that is my understanding. Uh, I don't know if my colleagues have anything they want to add.
9: Mr. Visek, Ms. Cross, anything you'd like to add to that? And, And I'm going to ask you a follow on briefly on top of that. Did the Biden administration review the Obama or Trump administration's determination that Al Shabaab was an associated force, and 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 if so, on what basis, if it differs in any way from the deputy, from what the deputy secretary just articulated?
3: Uh, Senator, first, I should say that uh, Deputy Secretary Sherman uh, answered perfectly, and she proved that she does not need lawyers. Uh, but. Uh, with respect to the review, there is an ongoing review being conducted by the administration across an entire spectrum of uh, counterterrorism issues, uh, including uh, direct action. Uh, and uh, we hope to, when that, when that review is done, we hope to be as transparent as possible. Uh, but it is taking a, a deep dive look at uh, the entire CT program and uh, it is underway, but it, uh, at this point, uh, I don't have anything final to report on that score.
9: Ms. Kress?
4: Yes, I have nothing to add, Senator.
9: Um, let me just ask whether in the interest of transparency, um, something I welcome and um, uh, will celebrate about the, the Biden-Harris administration, could you provide a list to this committee of all countries where force has been used pursuant to the 01 AUMF since it was enacted 20 years ago? and a list of um, groups against whom you believe force may currently be authorized pursuant to the O1 AUMF? Is that a list you could imagine providing to this committee?
3: Uh, Senator, um, I know that we report as a matter of course uh, on our activities under the uh, in regular war Power reporting, and uh, also pursuant to various provisions of the uh, the NDAA on uh, military operations, including their location, as as well as uh, groups that uh, uh, that uh, are targeted. Um, whether we have the ability to go back 20 years, uh, I, I don't want to necessarily commit to that. I think if we if we have that, I don't see why we would not be able to provide that.
9: M- Madam Deputy Secretary, I, I wondered um, if you could make any commitment to us that we would have an open debate about the current groups and nations in which uh, authorization is believed to rest on the O-1 AUMF?
2: As I said earlier, Senator, uh, we absolutely are open to open conversation with you about how the 2001 AUMF uh, might be revised, uh, including the groups that should be covered, uh, and how we might have an ongoing uh, process Uh, to ensure a strong partnership between the Congress and the executive branch in this matter.
9: Well, thank you. Before I turn to uh, Senator Young, I'm just going to say how much I appreciate uh, your articulated commitment to finding a way to craft an AOMF that is more narrow, more specific, that has a clear process for adding territories or groups, and that would include an end date. Um, That is a direct challenge to this committee and to the Senate, uh, to engage in a. Respectful, appropriate, and constitutionally necessary dialogue with this administration about our role and your role in both securing the people of the United States and in demonstrating our ability to exercise our constitutional responsibilities. Senator Young.
10: Thank you, Chairman. I understand that the 2001 AUMF is of great interest to uh, many of my colleagues because uh, there's, there's much to be debated there in the future as it pertains to uh, the scope of the authorities, how it might be amended, how it might be replaced. But I'm going to focus on, uh, really, the thrust of of today's hearing, uh, which is the legislation that is before this committee and will soon, I suspect, be before the United States Senate, the repeal of the 1991 and 2002 AUMFs. Now, each, each of those. Um, AUMFs was, was focused on the threat posed by Saddam Hussein, yeah. Saddam Hussein, uh, and his regime in Iraq. Uh, let's take the 2002 AUMF uh, as as our point of of uh, our focal point. After lengthy findings uh, on the threats posed by the re- regime of Saddam Hussein, Congress authorized the president in 2002 to, quote, use the armed forces of the United States as he determines to be necessary and appropriate to, number one, defend the national security of the United States against the continuing threat posed by Iraq. That's Saddam Hussein's Iraq. And two, enforce all relevant United Nations Security Council resolutions regarding Iraq. That's Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Secretary Sherman. Is the United States still at war with the government of Iraq as it states in the 2002 AUMF?
2: No, we are not, Senator. Okay. Are our forces
10: deployed to Iraq today at the invitation of a new Iraqi government?
2: Yes, Iraq is a sovereign government, and we have a strategic partnership with them.
10: Let's put a pin on that.
2: That's that's what we're talking
10: about here. It has nothing to do with 2001. We're just focused on 91, which incidentally I was right out of high school, just just enlisted in the United States Navy, Um, and in 2002. As you know, the the regime of, of Saddam Hussein was removed in 2003 pursuant to the terms of the very AUMF, the 2002 AUMF that I have just referenced. And Saddam Hussein was brought to justice by brave American servicemen and women and by uh, some of the Iraqi people. The government of Iraq is now a partner. They're not an enemy of the United States. And U.S. troops are there at the government's invitation, as as Deputy Secretary Sherman just indicated. With that, if our forces in Iraq were to be attacked by uh, Iranian-backed militias, uh, the Islamic State, or other terrorist groups, is there anything whatsoever that would stop the President of the United States from allowing U.S. forces to defend themselves against such an attack? Secretary, Deputy Secretary Sherman.
2: No, there is nothing that would keep the president from taking action as he has done uh, on uh, more than one occasion since he's become president.
10: Mr. Visick, do you agree with that assessment? I agree. The, uh, Ms. Krass, sure. yes. do you agree with that assessment?
4: Yes, I agree, sir.
10: Would repeal of the 91 or 2002 AUMF, the only thing we're focused on here today, negatively impact or endanger our service members and diplomats serving in Iraq. Deputy Secretary Sherman.
2: No, it would not, sir.
10: Uh, Do you agree with that assessment, Mr. Visek? Yes, I do. Ms. Crass. Yes, I agree. Okay. If this repeal of the 91 and the 2002 AUMF and no other AUMFs moves forward, as I expect it will, would any of you on the panel have any concerns about the safety and security of US personnel stationed in Iraq on account of said repeal? Yes or no, please. Dep- Deputy Secretary Sherman.
2: No, not as a result of the repeal.
10: Mr. Visick. Not as a result of the repeal, no. And Ms.
11: Cross.
4: I agree, not as a result of the repeal.
10: I have no further questions. Thank you so much.
9: Thank you, Senator. Senator Murphy.
11: Uh, Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Chairman, I've had only a few of what I call supermarket moments in my time in public service. These are moments when uh, the people I represent are so exercised by a conversation we're having here in Washington that they don't sort of wait to walk across the supermarket to register their opinion with you. They yell it at you. Um, And and there's been a handful of them. Um, The health care debate in 2009 was one of them. Um, but another was Labor Day weekend 2013 when President Obama had requested the authorization to use military force in Syria and we were about to have that debate. Um, my constituents back home had grave concerns about a commitment of US forces into Syria and so did all of yours. Because while well, this committee did do good work in moving that resolution forward, I didn't support it but it did receive a bipartisan vote before this committee it was not likely going to pass the United States Senate or the House of Representatives. It likely did not have enough support to move through the entire body. Why? Because the American public often is much more skeptical about the commitment of US forces abroad than this body is, or that the foreign policy consensus is in Washington DC. Why? Because they have seen time and time again mistakes being made. And so I think Senator Romney's right that um, Passing future AUMFs will be difficult, but for good reason, because the American public are very, very hesitant to commit US forces abroad. And sometimes, despite the fact that think tanks in Washington think it's a good idea for us to make war overseas, the American public don't. And as our founding fathers believed, we have an obligation to listen to them. Um, so. I just think it's important to lay that down for the record that passing the difficulty of passing authorizations of military force is not an excuse to grant wholesale new powers to the administration. There's a reason for the difficulty. Um, My set of questions is in pursuit of trying to find limiting principles around the powers that have been granted to the executive branch, particularly in the post-2001 era. I agree with Senator Young. Repealing 2002, 1991 likely has no impact on uh, our ability to protect forces in the region. I think we should go forward uh, quickly uh, in this matter. I also think it makes us stronger in the region. When we more accurately define our enemies, um, when we train Uh, our objectives with a finer point uh, in the Middle East, a very complicated place, um, we're stronger. Um, So I don't buy the argument that this makes us weaker. So let me ask about a couple limiting principles. Um, Secretary Sherman, does the administration recognize the concept of imminent threat as a limiting principle? In other words, if a strike is simply retaliatory, against an enemy who has struck the United States, or is designed to prevent future attacks, yeah. is that allowed without an AUMF, or does the administration always have to prove that there is um, a, um, that they are uh, trying to prevent an imminent future attack against the United States?
2: Uh, Senator, on that question, I'm going to defer to my legal advisor.
3: Uh, Senator, and, and I will I will start, and I suspect it would be helpful if I turned over to my colleague, uh, Ms. Crass who understands the the DoD operational uh, guidance uh, better than I. But um, we we always have when we're attacked, we have a right to defend ourselves, uh, and uh, I think the the idea of of imminence is really more in the what we would sort of call the uh, the, the use, from a, just a legal standpoint as opposed to a policy standpoint, uh, the use ad bellum idea that uh, you can certainly defend yourself against a imminent attack, uh,
11: and there are various principles. But you don't perceive it necessary to uh, to prove that there is an imminent attack. Taking the two strikes that we we did
3: this this year, the the uh, the. Um, February and the June strikes, uh, I don't think there was a requirement that there
11: be uh, a concern about be proof any. of an imminent attack. Let me ask you, let me ask you this just because the time is running out. Um, do we have the ability to take military action to protect partner forces? Let's say there's no uh, a, attack that's imminent against the United States. Can we take action to protect partner forces? On this one, I will certainly defer to my colleague, Ms. Kress.
4: Senator, if our U.S. armed forces are operating under existing uh, legal oath, domestic legal authority and there is a, an imminent threat of imminent attack against our partner forces who are working alongside us, for example, to defeat a counter-terrorist group, we, we may use force. Even if
11: there's no threat of force being used against the United States, if there's a threat of force against a partner force, in a country subject to a battle against an associated force of Al-Qaeda under the 2001 AUMF, we have the ability to use military force against them without prior authorization from the United States Congress.
4: Yes, because the whole um, conflict would have already been authorized by Congress.
11: Um, And lastly, I think you can see how um, it's a little difficult for the American public to figure out where these authorizations end when it is construed so broadly? And and lastly, I'll address this to whoever wants to take it. Um, How do you take a look at the question of when the frequency of Article 2 strikes requires you to come to Congress for a new authorization? Um, We have seen an increased frequency of attacks against Iranian-aligned militias. How do you enter into this question of when the frequency of Article 2 attacks requires you then to come to Congress for new permission? You can see a circumstance in which if you're striking twice a year, maybe you can consider that Article 2 authority. But if you're striking once a week, that doesn't sound like Article 2 authority. What's the limiting principle there? Well, Senator, as the the
3: voice in my head is always going. You're, you're, I'm now having to engage in hypotheticals, and I guess that's my one, one point where facts and circumstances are always important. Uh, and so we would obviously have to assess it in light of that. But to to try to attach it to concrete sort of uh, uh, situation that we're dealing with now, um, the the attacks from the uh, iran back militias, for example, we don't see those to be. We don't see any sort of continuing ongoing attacks by a particular entity. They tend to be more in the the discrete, individual, um, episodic, if you will. Uh, And so uh, there we think the Article II power is is more than adequate. Now, at the beginning of this um, hearing, Senator Menendez referenced the OLC opinions, uh, and I realize that there are differing views on those, but as executive branch lawyers, we do uh, take guidance from the Office of Legal Counsel. In that regard, and there are there are limiting principles in terms of uh, at what point do we think the and I believe Senator Men- Menendez referred to this the the scope duration and nature the reasonably anticipated uh, scope duration and nature uh, would rise to basically a, a, a level of war that would require us uh, to come to the uh, to the Congress and that would be focusing on not only our operation but the likely responses that would would follow from that. And then in terms of limiting principles, because I'm uh, here on behalf of the Department of State, I would also say there's, there's plainly limiting principles in international law, which we respect, um, and that the, a strike would need to be necessary, and it would need to be proportionate. And then obviously, once we're engaged in uh, 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 strikes, we obviously follow the, uh, the rules of international humanitarian law, which focus on you know, the principles of distinction, necessity, humanity, proportionality, so as to minimize, uh, say, harm to civilians, and to make sure we're acting proportionally.
11: I'm well over my time. This is a fascinating conversation, but I appreciate the indulgence, Mr. Chairman.
9: Happy birthday. Um, Senator Rounds. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. First,
12: let me just begin by saying thank you to all of you for being here and, and participating in this. I, I think Senator Murphy, uh, that's really started the conversation that that uh, many of us wanted to have here today, with regard to number one, the role and responsibility of the United States Congress, the role and responsibility of the executive branch, and how the the uh, the AUMFs that are currently in effect impact that relationship. I think there's pretty broad agreement that the 91 is outdated. Um, I think the it appears that the that the O2 um, uh, the challenges here, I think a number of the members here believe that it is outdated, and yet at the same time, it would appear that it's been relied on most recently by two different administrations in conjunction with Article 2 uh, uh, capabilities. And just in looking back, it would uh, would appear that the the uh, the uh, uh, attack on uh, General Soleimani, by the Trump administration, and uh, uh, the—it appeared that both the Obama administration and the Trump administration had used the 2002 AUMF to justify military action against Iranian-backed militias and proxies, uh, the Iranian government, and the Islamic State. Uh, Now, unless I'm mistaken, I believe they referred to both the Article II and uh, the the, um, the O2 AUMF in their justifications. And I'm just simply going to ask our, our two attorneys here, am I correct in that assumption? Ms. Kress?
4: Yes, my understanding is, um, particularly vis-a-vis the Trump administration, is that it was cited as an additional authority, but the primary authority for the money strike was Article 2.
12: Thank you. Would you agree, sir?
3: I would agree, and I would just note, um, Senator, that the uh, my predecessor and my former colleague, when he came up to testify, uh, he, uh, with respect to the Soleimani strike, he said, I would emphasize that independent of the 2002 AUMF, the president's constitutional authority under Article 2, provided a sufficient in domestic, uh, a, pr- provided a sufficient basis in domestic law for the strike. In other words, the 2002 uh, was not necessary. The Article II would have been sufficient. The 2002 has been, over the last six years, referred to as, I think, an additional or a a reinforcing authority.
12: Thank you. I I, I think the the question for many of us here is, the AUMF, in in a way, was an acknowledgement of Congress's role in the declaration of war or the actions that would be considered warlike. And if we walk away from, or we decide that one of these these AUMFs is no longer necessary. Then we are also recognizing that the sole authority that the executive branch uses under Article II uh, is is, in, in some cases, not restricted by that same AUMF. So I look at the AUMF as perhaps a restriction or a direction by Congress, uh, and I guess what I'm what I'm looking for is is. In this particular case, Congress had deemed that it was necessary to lay out where those actions were to be authorized. I would suspect that the executive branch of government would not have recognized it as a limitation, but as a full, as a further authorization. I don't want to acknowledge or to suggest that the that the that the authorizations or the, the the use of force by the United States government is solely reliant on Article II responsibilities. And, and what I'd ask this, just very briefly, is, is would it be fair to say that if we eliminated the 01 and the 02, would there be, and I think you've all indicated somewhat this, but is there a need to look at the 01 and perhaps make modifications and update that as part of the overall review of these AUMFs?
2: So we have stated quite clearly that we believe that it makes sense to revise the 2001 AUMF and look forward to those ongoing conversations with Congress because the president does respect and appreciate the Article 1 role of the United States Congress, uh, along with his Article II authority, which has been the basis. What I would say, Senator, because I understand the point you're making, that you want to make sure that if the 2002 and 1991 AUMFs are repealed, that it does not give a green light to the president, any president, to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, without regard to the Article I authority of the United States Congress. I think that is why, indeed, to follow up on Senator Murphy's questions, uh, working on a revised 2001 AUMF uh, would indeed assert further Congress's role in defining the uses of military force. I think. Every Congress has wanted to make sure that any president of the United States is able to act in the defense of our country.
12: Thank you. My time has expired. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank,
9: Thank you. you, Senator Kane. And if Senator Kane would um, take over the presiding duties, please.
13: Be glad to. Thank you, Senator Kunson. Thanks to the witnesses for a great hearing. I'm going to confine my comments to the 91 um, and 02 AOMFs. I think the 2001 AUMF revision is a more complex decision, and so let me just confine my comments to 91 and 02. Um, I I believe the repeal of 91 and 02 is very straightforward because the war is over. The, uh, the, The 91 authorization was to push Iraq out of Kuwait. We succeeded. The 02 authorization was to topple a hostile government, the government of Saddam Hussein. We succeeded. And in the years since he was executed following a trial in 2006. There's a new government that's been constituted, so the war is over. Um, After World War II, we didn't keep a military authorization live against Japan just in case. We didn't keep an authorization live against Germany just in case, and we could have because we'd had two wars against Germany in the previous 30 years. But no, we, we ended the war and we made allies out of Japan and Germany. After the Vietnam War, we did not keep a a military authorization for war against Vietnam around just in case. We've worked to build an increasingly cooperative partnership with Vietnam. There's still challenges in that relationship. But we don't keep military authorizations around when the war is over just in case. We try to make allies and partners out of those with whom we've been at war, that's something that's, what a unique thing about our country. That we can be at war with Japan and then Japan becomes an amazing ally of the United States. That we can be at war with Germany and Germany becomes an amazing ally of the United States. That we can have a relationship with Vietnam where the USS John McCain does port visits in Da Nang Harbor. It speaks to the magnanimity of the United States and these other nations that we turn enemies into allies, that we beat swords into plowshares. And so when a war is over, we should not continue to label a nation an enemy, we should try to make them an ally. And I believe, Secretary Sherman, what you said, we've done this with Iraq to a significant degree. We've made them a partner. And to continue to label them as at least an enemy enough to warrant a war authorization against them, strikes me as, something that we haven't done in the past, and we shouldn't do now. And let me dig into this. You're a diplomat, and you've done a lot of work in the Middle East. What does Iran fear more? Would they rather have an Iraq that was hostile to the United States, or would they rather have an Iraq that was a close economic, diplomatic, military, strategic, humanitarian, and security partner with the United States. What is more trouble for Iran?
2: I think you've painted it quite clearly, Senator. Uh, Iran uh, is quite anxious about the fact that we are partners now with Iraq.
13: So Iran would much rather have us be kind of on a war footing with Iraq because that would give them the ability to go to Iraq and say the United States will never be your partner, they may you know, say some nice words now and then, but they're not really your partner. They've got a war authorization against you. They're unwilling to repeal it. What kind of a partner maintains an ongoing war authorization against you 10 years after a war is over? Um, your diplomatic work, you've done work with Iran. I, I, Iran clearly sees the US relationship with Iraq. is very problematic for itself, doesn't it? Yes. And your judgment about Prime Minister Cotomy in the recent meetings with with President Biden and others, um, Iraq really wants a strong relationship with the United States right now, because for many reasons, including the threat they perceive from Iran. Isn't that correct? Yes, it is. So I think it's very important, given that maybe the the two primary worries we have in the Middle East are Iran and non-state terrorist groups, I think it's really important that we send a message to Iran that the U.S. is here in Iraq and we're partners and we're going to work together. That's the message that we would send by repealing this in my my estimation. Now, the other worry is non-state terrorist organizations, including these militias that attack the United States. But when they attack U.S. troops, and I just want to make this clear, when they attack U.S. troops in Iraq or Syria, we almost have a belt in suspenders ability to go back at them. We have the Article II power to defend U.S. troops from attack but also the US troops that are there are there pursuant to the 2001 authorization, the anti-ISIS mission. And if isn't it the case to our lawyers, if our troops are deployed in the anti-ISIS mission and somebody attacks those troops, the 2001 authorization also gives us the ability to repel attacks against those US forces that are deployed with, re, with respect to the anti-ISIS mission. Isn't that the case?
3: That is correct, Senator.
13: Yes. Ms. Grass? Yes, I agree. So, so repelling non-state terrorist attacks, including militia attacks, in Iraq and Syria, the president has Article II power, and those troops deployed in the anti-ISIS mission are also covered by the 2001 AUMF. And so we have a belt and suspenders. We don't I don't even know what, what you would have in addition to belt and suspenders. I don't know, long johns or something. We have a belt and suspenders military ability to protect the United States already with Article II in two thousand one. The war is long over in Iraq. We should recognize that reality as we have with past wars. Thank you, Mr. Oh wait, I'm the chair for a few minutes. I recognize next Enjoy Senator Haggerty. Oh, I'm not, Oh, not my, brief moment just, of, my brief moment of fame.
14: Our chairman has returned, Senator Kaine. Um, And I want to say a particular thanks to our chairman and our ranking member for having this important public meeting in the classified meeting that we had to. This is a very important topic and I appreciate our ability to have this. Um, it, right now, the Biden administration is continuing to negotiate uh, with the Iranian regime over how to revive the Iran nuclear deal. This is uh, a deal that I believe is fundamentally fra- flawed. But more broadly, the United States and our allies in the Middle East are also in a longer struggle with the Iranian regime over whether this, this whole region will be dominated by the forces of moderation and modernity or by the forces of tyranny and terrorism. And on that score, Iran is leveraging. It's escalating its posture against us. It's using terrorists. It's using militants using rockets and drones to attack American personnel in Syria, in Iraq, and it's done so numerous times since January of 2021. And it's in this context, at a time of Iranian escalation, that the Biden administration is supporting the repeal of Saddam-era U.S. military authorizations in Iraq, but they're not asking for a replacement congressional authorization. As a lifelong businessman, as a former diplomat, I'm loath to ever unilaterally take leverage off the table unless we're getting something for it or unless we simultaneously put another card back on the table. I think Chairman Menendez made this point in a very salient manner during the questioning we had in our classified briefing. Deputy Secretary Sherman, I was very glad to see you say in your prepared testimony today that the administration supports not only repealing the Iraq authorizations but also quote, replacing them as needed with clear, narrow, and specific frameworks. That's in order to, quote, continue protecting our people and our interests. Right now, I believe updated congressional authorities are needed precisely because terrorists and state sponsors of terrorism are continuing to escalate attacks on Americans in the Middle East. The executive branch will only be in a stronger position if Congress authorizes it to defend Americans in harm's way. And that's why I've authored legislative language that would do three things. First, it would repeal the 1991 and 2002 authorizations for use of military force in Iraq. Second, it would authorize the president to defend our national security interests against continuing threats that are posed by terrorists and state sponsors of terrorism operating in Iraq. And third, it would authorize the president to prevent and respond to attacks against Americans by terrorists and state sponsors of terrorism who are operating in Iraq. And Deputy Secretary Sherman, I appreciate your acknowledgement of the respect that the Biden administration holds for Congress's Article I authority. And given the escalation of events in Iran, I think it's absolutely critical that Congress exercise its authority. So I have a very simple question. Deputy Secretary Sherman, will you commit to ensuring that the administration will provide written feedback on the language that I proposed in advance of this committee's business meeting on the AUMF repeal that'll occur tomorrow on Wednesday.
2: Uh, Senator, we will certainly do the best that we can to do that in a timely manner uh, in advance of tomorrow's vote, Uh, though I will say that we may not be able to do the thorough review you would want of your legislation because we have an interagency process when we do these reviews, but we will certainly do the best we can to be responsive.
14: Back to our negotiating posture. Again, I'm loathe to remove an authority and not be prepared to put another in its place. It's not good negotiating strategy. That's the way I would encourage us to look at this and my colleagues and I would implore your team to put the time and the effort and to provide us with feedback because I think it would be absolutely critical. Uh, I think it's important to put something on the table to signal to our allies in the Middle East and to our adversaries where we stand and that we have the resolve to defend not only our nation's interests and our partners' interests, but also the American people.
2: Senator, I will add that we do still have the 2001 AUMF, which is focused on those counterterrorism threats. Uh, And so we very much look forward to reviewing the legislation you've put forth but I don't want to leave you or anyone listening to this and your colleagues uh, to think that we are without uh, tools. We have the Article II authority that we've been discussing this morning, and we have the 2001 AUMF, which we have used both in terms of al-Qaeda and associated forces in ISIS. So back to uh,
14: Back to, to uh, Ranking Member Risch's earlier comments about communication and messaging. I think we're talking about removing a tool right now, and again, I'm loath to remove any tool that gives us leverage at a time that the Iranian regime is escalating its posture against us without at least replacing it with something more focused, more, more current, and more responsible. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Um, Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman.
15: Um, I was in Congress in 1991, and uh, we had a robust debate around the need to give President Bush the authority to remove uh, Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. He received that authority. We removed uh, Saddam from Kuwait. That's 30 years ago. It's it's ancient political history. So that 1991 authorization just has to go. Uh, I was in Congress in 2002 when we debated the authorization for use of military force in Iraq. Of course, we know that the war ultimately was fought on a lie that President Bush and Dick Cheney, his entire administration made, which was that there were nuclear weapons in Iraq. They knew there were not, that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. We know that they lied. And the whole premise of the war was a big lie. Uh, that we were going in to remove nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction from that country. So it's time for that authorization to go, as Senator Kane has said, and others. We are now in a completely different posture uh, with the Iraq government. Uh, We're no longer at war with them. Uh, And again, that war was based upon a complete and total fabrication, a complete and total lie uh, that was told to the American public with incredibly negative uh, consequences for so many (laughs) tens of thousands of families across our country and um, families in the country of Iraq as well. So we have to move on, I think, to the conversation about where we are today. And one of the questions I'd like to ask is um, that I I welcome the Biden administration's announced decision in February to end its support for offensive operations Uh, by the Saudi-led military coalition in Yemen and for its commitment to a political solution that ends a six-year civil war that has the tragic distinction of being the largest humanitarian emergency on the planet. However, uh, the United States government is continuing to support uh, the Saudi forces responsible for um, immense human suffering in Yemen. Ms. Krause, the United States maintains contracts with the Saudi Royal Air Force to maintain its fighter aircraft. How does the administration make the distinction between supporting offensive and defensive operations when we know that the Saudi Air Force is carrying out strikes in Yemen using U.S.-maintained fighter aircraft?
4: Um, Senator, as you say, our our armed forces are providing... Um, advice and limited information for defensive and training purposes only in connection with that conflict, and we're always um, very mindful of legislative um, mandates and restrictions to make sure that as we provide assistance to our um, to our partners um, that we make sure that the law of armed conflict you know it is appropriately complied with.
15: Um, let me ask you this question um, in in Oman. Um, uh, I I know that the Biden administration is attempting to get the Houthis uh, and the government of Yemen to return to the negotiating table. What leverage does the United States and its partners have to urge the Houthis to end its military offensive uh, and return to diplomatic talks?
2: Uh, Senator, uh, as you note, uh, the president uh, took a step to end the support to Saudi-led coalition forces' uh, offensive actions to basically say it is time to bring this war to an end, uh, given the devastating humanitarian impact that you noted. Um, We do continue to believe a political solution is the only way to resolve this unless in the humanitarian crisis. We have urged uh, countries like Oman that has relations with the Houthis uh, to put pressure on them to, in fact, come to the table. I was just in Oman on uh, my latest around-the-world uh, travels uh, and uh, encourage them to do just that. Uh, we have an envoy, Tim Lenderking, who is just nonstop in his going to those countries who can affect all the parties here uh, to try to reach a political resolution, which is the only way out of this nightmare.
15: And what success are we having in getting... Uh, Saudi Arabia United Arab Emirates to pay their fair share to take care of this humanitarian crisis in Yemen
2: Uh, There is an ongoing effort to do that with some success, but quite frankly Senator the real answer to this is the one that you are implying and that is to have a political resolution and bring any Conflict to an end.
0: Okay. Thank you. Senator Cruz
16: Thank you, mr. Chairman Thank you to the witnesses who are, be- who are here today. Uh, Ambassador Sherman, uh, as you and I have discussed at length, uh, I have very deep concerns with the Biden administration's approach to Iran. Uh, I believe the Biden administration has consistently demonstrated weakness and appeasement towards Iran. And I believe that weakness and appeasement only invites further conflict and further risk of loss of human life. In the last six months, the Ayatollah has declared open season on the United States and our interests. The Iranians have attacked American forces repeatedly and killed a U.S. military contractor. They have tried to conduct terrorism on U.S. soil, even going so far as attempting kidnapping of an American journalist on American soil, sending an Iranian kidnap team to our country. They have launched attack after attack after attack on our Arab allies. They have launched multiple attacks on civilian vessels, including an attack on an Israeli ship and killed citizens from two close U.S. allies, Great Britain and Romania. And in just the last few hours, there are reports of yet more ships being hit by Iranian mines. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has again and again declined to respond to these attacks. And worse, the Biden administration has revoked terrorism sanctions against Iran's terrorist proxies in Yemen. Your administration has removed Iranian officials from sanctions. You've dialed back enforcement of oil sanctions, including violations by the Chinese Communist Party. You've unlocked Iranian accounts worth billions of dollars to allow Iran to pay down debts and pointedly You have repeatedly declined to respond to Iranian attacks against our troops and haven't imposed a single new sanction. Why is it that the Biden administration has not responded and responded forcefully to these repeated Iranian attacks?
2: Senator, you and I, as you note, have an ongoing discussion about how best To ensure that Iran does not obtain a nuclear weapon, that it stops its state sponsorship of terrorism, that it stops its malign behavior in the region, that it stops putting our allies and partners at risk. We both have the same objective, and that is to ensure that our people and those of our partners and allies are protected, and to ensure that Iran does not obtain a nuclear weapon and stops. Its malign behavior. So we are in agreement on the objective. We have a disagreement about the means. I do not agree with some of what you have put on the table. I believe the Biden administration has had maximum sanctions.
16: Name one sanction you've imposed
2: on Iran. We have added additional entities on an ongoing basis as we have the evidentiary information about those entities. Is your strategy
16: working? Are are, are they stopping the attacks or are they scaling them up?
2: uh, Senator, Nothing has stopped the attacks by Iran. The killing of Qasem Soleimani did not deter the Iranians from attacks. Now, is the
16: reason that you haven't responded, do you lack the authorization to to, to respond?
2: uh, We do not lack the authorization to respond. And the president has taken strikes, both in February and in June, against Iranian-backed militia. So, Senator, I think we probably will not come to an agreement on this, uh, on how best to approach Iran But I do appreciate that we have the same objective.
16: So the debate Congress is having over the 2002 AUMF, I very much support Congress reasserting its authority over the war-making authority of our government. I think that is an important constitutional authority. But I worry that this debate is occurring in the context of the Biden administration's embrace of Iran and the Ayatollah, and that the repeal of the AUMF will be used as justification for continuing to go soft on Iran. The White House has stated in a June 14th statement of administration policy that, quote, the United States has no ongoing military activities that rely solely on the 2002 AUMF as a domestic legal basis. And repeal of the 2002 AUMF would likely have minimal impact on current military operations. That statement uses the word current very precisely. Is it the position of the Biden administration that the 2002 AUMF was necessary for any of the operations against Iran undertaken in the past 10 years?
2: I can have the lawyer speak to the last 10 years. What I can say is that the strikes that were taken in February and June against Iran-backed militia Uh, Uh, Let me me ask you specifically
16: about the one you referenced a minute ago, which is the attack on on General Soleimani. Do you believe that that that, was was legally authorized, number one, and number two, did it require the 2002 AUMF to have authorization? I
2: was not part of that administration, but my understanding is that Article 2 was used as the primary authority for taking that strike.
16: And and what is the Biden State Department's position now? Was that that strike authorized by Article 2? or not?
2: I defer to my-
16: I'm asking the Biden State Department.
2: I refer to the State Department's lawyer. Uh,
3: Good morning, Senator. Um, The the strike on Soleimani uh, under the last administration, as my former colleague, uh, who was then the acting legal advisor, uh, said to this committee, I would emphasize that, independent of the 2002 AUMF, the president's constitutional authority under Article II provided a sufficient basis in domestic law for the strike. Thank you. Plainly, uh, at the time, it was thought that the Article II authority was sufficient. The 2002 AUMF was cited as an addition, additional authority, which is consistent with the way it has been articulated, at least for the last six years. you Recall, there was prior to the six years, there was a period of time where there was not a, uh, a lot of military operations in the Iraq space. Uh, it was with the return of ISIS uh, that things uh, ramped up again. And obviously, with respect to ISIS, we have the 2001 AUMF that provides us authority.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Senator Merkley. Uh, I advise members, there's a vote going on. At some point, I'll determine whether we recess or uh, we can power through. So, Senator Merkley.
17: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and Deputy Secretary Sherman. Back in 1797, John Adams was in the situation of observing that the French were seizing U.S. commercial ships. So he requested to Congress authorization to respond, and Congress didn't respond. So he requested it again in 1798, and in May of that year, Congress did give him authorization, and then he deployed U.S. ships to protect our commercial ships, our Navy ships, in 1801 uh, Thomas Jefferson was president and the Bay, that's B-E-Y, of Tripoli. The ruler of Tripoli was seizing U.S. commercial ships in the Mediterranean and so Thomas Jefferson asked Congress for authorization to respond and uh, a few weeks later uh, Congress did in 1802. So He he made the request in December of 1801 and uh, in February 1802 Congress gave that authorization. 1815, President Madison had the situation where the Regency of Algeria was seizing US ships in the Mediterranean. And so he sent a message uh, to Congress and asked for declaration of war. And in March, the following month, Congress rejected the request for declaration of war but passed legislation authorizing responding. Why did these three presidents not simply assert Article II powers and proceed to deploy U.S. ships, naval ships, to protect our commercial ships?
2: Senator, my guess is you know the answer to that better than I do. Uh, I don't know the history here uh, that you're citing. uh, So I'm not sure why they did not assert Article 2.
17: Well, I'm happy to to help with this little history lesson. Thank you. uh, Because the answer is that when our founders wrote our Constitution, they were very, very concerned about the use of the power of war. And so they delegated that not to the president, but to Congress. And our early presidents took that extremely seriously. If we fast forward to the Vietnam era, we have the conduct of hostilities under President Kennedy, President Johnson, President Nixon without an authorization, which led to the 1973 War Powers Act, where Congress said stop this is a complete violation, and we need to re-seize the, the vision of our constitution in which Congress has to provide authorization, as envisioned in our Constitution, as envisioned by our early and acted on by our early early presidents. However, it's proved extremely difficult to, to maintain that vision. And the argument our founders made was that the impact of the of essentially conducting war, or actions of war, is so significant that it should be entrusted to no one person. But Article II, as now interpreted, asserts the opposite, that one person can make these, these decisions. And we would think that the uh, Supreme Court would play a role here in deciding where is that balance between the constitutional vision and the current actions. But the court has bailed on on these questions, leaving us to wrestle with this as we are at this hearing. So here we are debating this question of when will the president ask for authorization or how will the president reinterpret existing authorization and how does that fit with our constitutional division of powers? I've been extremely struck that the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, did not contain the words and associated forces. And yet, time after time after time, the justification for using the 2001 authorization in various parts of the world has been because the administration, various administrations, assert, we are going to add the words and associated forces, which means there's no limit in time, no limit in geography, and no limit in terms of the direct involvement that was written in the 2001 authorization, where it said it was specifically about groups that planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks on a specific date of September 11, 2001. So now we have the situation where New, sit, new areas around the world, new involvement of groups we don't like, we employ forces against, and we justify it under the 2001 AUMF in part or under Article II, but the list of groups and individuals the executive branch considers covered by the 2001 AUMF is secret. So I ask you this, did Congress intend for the 2001 AUMF to authorize secret wars?
2: Certainly, uh, Senator. uh, AUMF's, in my understanding, is for us to have a transparent relationship about the threats that we are trying to address. And the Biden-Harris administration, as we have said today, Is very open and already in discussions with this committee and with the Senate to revise the 2001 AUMF to be narrow specific framework uh, that would resolve some of the concerns that you are raising. If we were to create that specific
17: framework in a legislative process, we would have to essentially list the places in the world that we're authorizing. Those places are currently secret in terms of the additional information or authorizations that have been interpreted and added. Is there a reason then not to make those locations, those situations public here in the United States of America?
2: My understanding, and I'll defer to my uh, legal counsel here, is that we, are obligated to report to Congress what we are doing, and that there are no secrets.
4: Rich?
3: Yes, Senator, we have a we report regularly under the War Powers Resolution and under the uh, national-
17: Yes, my question was about public disclosure, not reporting to, to Congress.
3: Well, I think uh, you're probably referencing, I, I believe, perhaps-
17: uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I can't hear you you're speaking up I'm, a little bit.
3: I'm sorry, Senator. Um, my understanding that certain, uh, certain groups may have been classified uh, to, uh, for national security reasons, but uh, you know other information is, is uh, publicly available. And I don't know if my colleague-
17: It's not may not, may have been, they have been. And my point is if Congress is going to have a discussion over tailoring such a new AUMF, it becomes a public discussion. And I, I guess I'm asking this, will the administration consider making public all the locations where they now have granted themselves authorization to conduct military strikes?
2: We are open to having that discussion with you, Senator, but uh, to back up what my uh, legal advisor colleague has said, uh, there are situations where it may be in the interest of our national security uh, for those reports to come to Congress in a classified setting.
0: Thank you. Senator Booker.
18: Thanks. Um Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, I'm grateful for the conversation we're having today, and I uh, agree with a lot of my colleagues on their concerns about uh, uh, the authorizations for military force that have been out there for too long and the needs uh, to reform them on, and revoke them. And I guess I, I'd just like to um, – Secretary Sherman – dig a little deeper into gonna... our current strategy with uh with Iraq. And last week, President Biden announced that the United States would end its combat mission in Iraq. Can you describe what are the what's the strategic objectives we now have in, in Iraq now that we're ending our combat mission?
2: Certainly, Senator. Um, at the request of the Iraqi government, um, we have agreed that U.S. military forces will remain in Iraq to focus on training, enabling, and advising our Iraqi partners. This is not the end of our military mission in Iraq. As our consultations with the Iraqi government have highlighted, the progress of our Iraqi partners in the growth of their capabilities will allow for the full transition later this year of U.S. and coalition forces to a mission that is focused on training, enabling, and advisory tasks. I would defer to uh, my DOD colleague for any additional details.
4: Um, I agree very much with that that summary. Thank you.
18: But, but uh, and, and, uh, Secretary Sherman, you would agree, though, that uh, there's been some backlash uh, or resistance uh, from the Iraqi government about having combat troops stationed there. And obviously the, the more limited role of training and advising, but in terms of just uh, the... Uh, our diplomatic relations with Iraq they they also agree they do not want us uh, to have a combat mission in Iraq is that correct
2: indeed this this came out of discussions with the Iraqi government and one of the points we've been making here today is that the Iraq government is a sovereign government that is fully formed uh, that our relationship has uh, shifted over these decades from adversary to partner.
18: And so, is the understanding that is the 2002 AUMF really needed to ensure any of these strategic objectives? Uh, is it necessary uh, for what we're trying to achieve in Iraq?
2: It, it is not at it, all, Senator.
18: And in some ways, as I think Senator Kane was making the point, it could actually be problematic in terms of uh, Iraqi perceptions of the United States. And having us label them in this manner with these past AUMFs, am I am I uh, correct in that opinion?
2: I would agree with you, Senator. Yes.
18: Okay. Um, I, I would also like to just dig in a little bit to the idea that um, two different administrations now have have pointed to more than just the AUMFs as a as as a authorization to use their military force. Um, The Trump administration used uh, sort of an expanded interpretation uh, to claim that the 2002 Iraq AUMF authorized its assassination of Soleimani. And Congress, though, and and many other scholars said that the 2002 AUMF was not that broad. Uh, They did say that they had uh, other authorities. But I I just want to go back to this 2002 AUMF, which I agree doesn't serve a purpose to any of our strategic objectives. It clearly states that this concerns is concerned with Saddam Hussein uh, assembling weapons of mass destruction and defiance of the U.N. Security Council. And I, I guess I would like to know from uh, from the panel, it, it, do you believe that there is a viable argument that the 2002 math authorizes at this point any use of force at all um, uh, in, in terms of where things stand today? Do we have... Uh, the cover of an AUMF to do military strikes within Iran. Excuse me, within Iraq.
2: Um, The 2002 AUMF, in our view, is not necessary at all uh, for our operations in Iraq.
18: And so would there, you know, I guess maybe then what circumstances would enable or motivate the administration to use that 2002 AUMF uh, for strikes in either Iraq or Iran is it is it, it, it can it in any way be uh, stretched or bent or or uh, uh, made to apply to any of our potential um, need for uh, uh, perceived need for uh, conflicts in either of those countries.
2: I'm going to let the lawyers answer that, given the way you've asked the question, Senator. But but I will say that. Uh, we do not have uh, uh, a desire for conflict uh, with either the Iraqi government, that is a partner, or Iran, which is certainly not a partner.
18: All right, I, I think my time is up, and I'll. I'll but I would, I would, Mr. The second, I'd, I'd prefer if you if you do have a comment, I'd I'd like to hear it, and then I'll I will I will yield to to Senator Schatz.
3: Uh, I would just say, Senator, that we do not need the 2002 AUMF for our mission in Iraq. We have the 2001, and for uh, defense purposes, we also would
19: have Article 2. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank thank you, Senator Booker. Uh, Senator Schatz is uh, recognized
20: via WebEx. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Secretary Sherman, uh, war is... A failure of diplomacy and the ending of war usually requires diplomacy and so i want to just flag the fact that we haven't passed a state department reauthorization act since 2003 so there's no real way for us to dial up or down resources or authorize new programs to meet our diplomatic objectives to um, uh, work uh, with the defense department on our strategic military objectives and so can you talk about what it would be like if Congress passed an annual State Department Reauthorization Act, as we do for the National Defense Authorization Act, and how that impacts this overall debate.
2: Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Senator, and thank you for your support for diplomacy, which we always believe should be the first resort and that any use of our military should be the last resort in solving problems. Um, I actually uh, have been in government at a time when there has been a state authorization bill and it creates the contours and the uh, deepens the authorities that we have to engage in diplomacy around the world. Uh, so we would always welcome Congress's role uh, in that regard.
20: Well, you know, Senator Sullivan um, was, was a leader in getting the Coast Guard reauthorization to sort of hitch a ride on the defense authorization. I think that's something we ought to consider for the next defense authorization. Mm-hmm. Secretary Sherman, I, I also want to follow up uh, on the NDAA and, and ask why we shouldn't just sunset every AUMF in every defense authorization. Uh, I, I understand military leaders um, being concerned about um, geographic and time constraints so that our enemies can work around them, but if it is, a matter of course that Congress sunsets every authorization of the use of military force, and it is a matter of course, uh, therefore, that we reconsider it and reauthorize every year. That would change um, the way we do our oversight and reassert our constitutional authority. So why not just sunset every AUMF uh, on an annual basis and then force Congress to do its job on an annual (laughs) basis?
2: Uh, I think I'll leave that to the discretion of the United States Senate, though uh, Ms. Crass may have a comment she wants to make on that in terms of what it would mean for our military forces.
4: Yeah, Feel I think free. That, um, Senator, I think that there could be some challenging operational impacts of establishing a rhythm like that.
20: I've heard that, and I guess I want to press back a little bit because the the challenging operational impacts with a rhythm like that um, is really the reason that we haven't even seriously considered uh, amending or repealing either of these AUMFs uh, in the longest period of time in American history. And so, how can we address those legitimate concerns that you're sort of obliquely referring to um, without just abandoning uh, our responsibility?
4: Um, we, we support you know, the conversations that um, Deputy Secretary uh, Sherman has been um, discussing in terms of executive branch and congressional co- conversations about how to replace, um, for example, the 2001 AOMF with something more narrow and specific. And we look forward to continuing those conversations with you and your colleagues.
20: Thank you. Uh, Secretary Sherman, uh, as you know, the nature of war is changing with a key keystroke. Uh, Uh, a foreign adversary can have uh, a greater negative impact, even a violent impact uh, on the United States than um, had they mobilized uh, tanks and troops and airplanes. And I'm wondering how we address this new reality in the context of a statute that did not really contemplate anything other than traditional kinetic engagement. So how do we define war Um, under the War Powers Resolution, or how do we interpret the definition of war under the War Powers Resolution um, in in an era with cyber attacks and in in an era where we know many of our adversaries are operating in uh, the gray zone?
2: Uh, Yes, uh, some of your other colleagues have raised uh, cyberspace and its impact on both terrorist threats as well as uh, the nature of war, so to speak. I think we are all uh, contemplating uh, these new issues uh, and these new, new domains and arenas. Uh, indeed, um, uh, we now have a new uh, domain in the Defense Department uh, with Space Force. Uh, so we are always thinking about how we have to update, how we proceed in the world uh, given these new threats. In terms of what that means uh, regarding law and, uh, and war, uh, I would defer to my uh legal counsel here about how they would view that going forward. go ahead
3: well senator uh, as as I think you probably realize this is an extraordinarily complex issue um, uh without a doubt it's a it's a uh cyber And and what has been loosely defined as, uh, you know, cyber war and how it relates to the law of armed conflict uh, is a matter of intense uh, discussion and and, uh, examination in the interagency. Uh, You know, obviously, if a uh, a foreign state uses cyber uh, in a way that amounts to a use of uh, force, uh, you know, that would be... Uh, an object of of concern and under international law, uh, but it's uh, it is such a vastly complicated area that uh, uh, I for one would want to sit down and talk with the interagency colleagues in a, in a studied way to address your your uh, your concerns, which I think are a hearing unto themselves, not that I'm inviting.
20: Sure. and two, two final in. thoughts here. What constitutes a use of force is basically the crux of the question. And the second uh, final thought is that this is really Congress's role to define uh, the use of force, given that there are new uh, ways to use force that weren't contemplated under the old uh, statute. Thank you.
19: Uh, Thank you, Senator Schatz. And uh, let me thank all of our witnesses uh, for their testimony. Um, Madam Secretary, I'm going to start with you. And uh, if you want to refer any of these uh, questions to your legal counsel, uh, please feel free to do so. Uh, and I want to associate myself with the comments I heard Senator Kane make and you, Madam Secretary, in your response that getting rid of the 2002 AUMF is important to send a message to the Iraqi people and the Iraqi government uh, that we are partners um, and not adversaries as we were with the government that was there under Saddam Hussein at the time uh, that authorization uh, was passed. Uh, Some questions, just so I understand this administration's thinking. Um, Would you agree, Madam Secretary, that other than the President's powers under Article II, the President does not have authority to launch military strikes against Iran?
2: I take that as a legal question, so I'm going to defer to Mr. Visick and to Ms. Kress.
19: Mr. Visick?
3: Uh, uh, thank you, Senator. Our position is the uh, the 2002 AUMF does not authorize strikes against Iran. Not to confuse Miss. I would note, however, that I think, I believe it may have been Senator Kaine who talked about uh, an, ancillary defenses, where if we were carrying out a 2001 uh, operation and came under attack by whatever force it might be, uh, that was not, the subject of the 2001 mission, we would obviously be able to defend ourselves
19: in the context of operating. Well, just so I understand, you're saying that that you're invoking an an, other than Article II power there? It would be. Under the 2001 AUMF, is that what you're suggesting?
3: It's the concept of ancillary self-defense, that when our military engages in authorized missions, this instance would be a 2001 AUMF mission against, let's say, ISIS. Uh, If they came under attack from, from whatever source Right. Laterally, they would. So I, I'm,
19: I'm not, look, this is a pretty direct question. Um, I, I understand the, the legal responses can be technical. I'm an attorney, but um, we have the 2001 AUMF, is, as you well know, as has been stated here, relates to ISIS and its successors, right? Iran is not ISIS or one of its successors, is it?
13: No, it is not. Okay. So, so
19: other than Article 2, Does the president have any authority to launch military strikes against the state of Iran? Pretty simple question. Uh,
3: Senator, the the 2001 does not authorize strikes against Iran. I would agree with that. And nor does the 2002 authorize strikes again.
19: Correct. And so are there any authorities left other than Article 2? Senator, with 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 the caveat of
3: what I, what I admit is a sort of nuanced ancillary defense argument, I, I take your point. Neither the 2001 nor the 2002 nor the 1991 AUMFs authorized the use of force against Iraq. Got it.
0: Okay.
19: I I I didn't think it would take so much time to get to this point. So with your indulgence, I'm (laughs) going to keep asking some uh, additional questions. Now I'm trying to explore what the president believes is his scope of authority under article two and of course the presidents do have the authority to take preemptive strikes in the case of an imminent attack agreed yes senator okay and you're familiar with the the caroline doctrine that was reaffirmed by the nuremberg trials after world war ii correct
3: Uh, I'm familiar with the Caroline case that goes back to 1837.
19: And does this administration, the Biden administration, subscribe to the standard regarding uh, preemptive attacks that is laid out in the Caroline Doctrine?
3: Uh, Senator, I would want to consult my my colleague here from DOD. I I would have to talk to others. This is not a question that I necessarily came equipped to answer, and I would desperately like to get it right.
19: All right. right. Counsel from defense. Thank you.
4: I similarly would like to get it right, and I I joined uh, the administration um, just this week, and so I would want to have those conversations as well.
19: All right. Uh, If you could get back to me in writing, because as you know, in past administrations, uh, we've had the the theory of preventative war, uh, which doesn't contain the important ingredients of imminence that is in the caroline doctrine so i'm very interested in understanding what the biden administration's position is with respect to the caroline doctrine
3: Uh, well senator we 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 do have the authority to respond to an imminent threat but i take your point and that you're interested i I, I,
19: i'm not disputing that i'm stating that i'm asking whether your definition of that of that standard is the Caroline Doctrine. If I could just ask a couple questions uh, regarding the uh, attack on the Mercer uh, recently, um, which is, I understand it is a Japanese owned ship under Israeli management and two uh, innocent people were killed, uh, a British citizen and a Romanian citizen. Um, And I saw the secretary, Secretary Blinken's response uh, saying that we were going to hold Iran responsible um, and accountable. I agree they should be held accountable. My question, Madam Secretary, is um, not what you will do, not what you may do, but what you believe you have the scope of authority to do. Does Article Two give the president any authority to take military action against Iran in response to the attack on the Mercer?
2: I would have to defer to Mr. Visick or Ms. Kress as a legal matter. What I want to say, though, is that in this instance, as the Secretary said, we are really uh, relying on our British colleagues to take the lead on this since it is, in fact, their uh, ship, even though it was originally Japanese and because a UK and a Romanian citizen were killed... Uh, So, we are letting the British take the lead both at the UN in terms of what the response would be as well as any further response. I do think it was quite critical that we had a coordinated attribution that this was indeed Iran.
19: Okay, let me just refine that question a little bit if I could, Mr. Chairman. with respect to uh, the... the here, here we have a, a partner, we have a NATO partner, of course, the, the, the Brits, um, but it, it doesn't seem to fall under a, you know, Article II uh, response authority uh, other than maybe invoking some other multilateral agreement like like NATO Charter or some UN Security Council resolution. Would you... I'm trying to get a sense of what the administration believes... Its authorities are in terms of military response in a strike like this against a non-U.S. entity, uh, but a close U.S. friend.
3: And, Senator, uh, subject to my, my colleagues' uh, views, um, this would be a situation where we would assemble with the interagency. We would talk about the facts, the circumstances, uh, such factors of attribution, any of a number of factors before I would even want to venture an opinion as to whether or not there was an Article II basis. And obviously, we would look to the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel. Uh, you know, I, I have not, I'm not aware of any, uh, uh, nobody has asked me whether this is covered by Article II as of yet, if that is helpful.
19: Got it. Thank you. That is. Um, Mr. Chairman, do you want to make any closing
0: yeah. remarks? OK. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for presiding. Um, There's obviously a uh, a robust interest, uh, as is evidenced by the fact that uh, an overwhelming majority of the members on both sides of the aisle have actually attended this hearing at one point or the other, so it speaks to the importance of the issue. We appreciate the insights uh, of this panel, uh, uh, Madam Secretary, and your distinguished colleagues in trying to shed light on the issues that we are in the midst of uh, deciding on. And uh, the committee will hold the markup tomorrow on the 91 and 2002, Uh, and uh, we will see how the votes are cast there, and then we will continue to engage uh, the administration, which I want to acknowledge again, has been engaged uh, to the National Security Advisor and others uh, into what, such a replacement might look like if the Congress were to go ahead with a repeal. So uh, this hearing's uh, record will remain open to the close of business today.
17: And with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is uh, closed. (laughs)